Will you pray with me? Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us in the waiting, in the watching, in the hoping, the longing, the sorrow, and the singing, and the rejoicing. God, we ask that you would speak to us from your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. Well, in the middle of the Renaissance in the 16th century, the great reformer and theologian named John Calvin, he made this observation. He said, today all sorts of subjects are eagerly pursued, but the knowledge of God is neglected. And then he went on to say, yet to know God is humanity's chief end, even if a hundred lives were ours, this one aim would be sufficient for them all. If Calvin only knew about all the educational opportunities available to students today, he would probably be rolling over in his grave. The chances are, if you have a passion for something, you can probably get a degree in it. So I looked up a couple things, because I was interested in this, and I found out that you can actually earn some degrees in some pretty surprising things, like auctioneering. Can you imagine going to school for auctioneering? You learn how to become, you guessed it, an auctioneer. So you have to learn the auctioneer's chant, right? Um, You can take a class on that. Learn how to do it. To appraise, obtain and appraise items, learning to run an auction start to finish. Or if you are, this is the one that excited me the most that I found, you can obtain a degree in surfing science and technology, right? (laughs) Where you learn how to become an awesome surfer. And so it's a really, really good thing that that degree did not exist when I was choosing my major, because history and theology would have been thrown out the window, and who knows where I would be today if I had gone down that educational path. Well, auctioneering and surfing degrees aside, Calvin was correct about a couple of things. There's nothing more important in the world than the knowledge of God. And secondly, that the lament that so few people actually pursue this most important Knowledge, And so today we're going to actually look at the story of Jesus' beginnings from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And in these kind of eight really short verses, he's going to pack them full of some of the most surprising and important knowledge that we could ever hope to gain. Knowledge that has not only changed the course of human history, but knowledge that can change the course of an individual human life. And so most of the knowledge that he's about to drop is actually going to be in the form of two names given to the baby at his birth. It's these two names that are going to tell us about the person and about the work of the child who is born. So listen for the two names as we read the story together. The birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from dream, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took her 
as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until they had born a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so in this account, Matthew is sharing with us his version of the Christmas story, the birth of the Messiah whom Israel had been waiting for for centuries. And when Luke tells his story, he tells it through the eyes of Jesus' mother, Mary, but Matthew tells it through Joseph's point of view. So Mary, who was engaged to Joseph, discovers that she's pregnant. The issue actually in that day was a much bigger deal than it is today, where pregnancy out of marriage relationship has become more of the norm. In Galilee, where this story took place, an engaged man and a woman did not sleep together. They did not live together until after marriage. So this pregnancy before the wedding day would have implied some less than reputable behavior, which would have been this enormous humiliation to Joseph. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, decides to take some of this blame and shame upon himself. Rather than publicly humiliating Mary, it says he quietly decides to divorce her. Because engagement in that culture was just as legally binding as marriage. that could only be dissolved by divorce. And so already we get these hints of the kind of man that Jesus' father was. He's the kind of man that's willing to take on someone else's shame upon himself. But this dream that he had would change everything. Well, it was during the holiday season that a wife told her husband that she had dreamed that for Christmas he had bought her this beautiful diamond necklace. Well, this was the best thing the husband had ever heard Because as usual, he had no clue what to get his wife for Christmas. And now she gave him the perfect gift idea. So he was super excited. He knew exactly what he needed to do. The husband responded to her dream perfectly on Christmas morning. He took this beautifully wrapped gift and he gave it to her. And eagerly, she tore off the wrapping paper in anticipation of this beautiful, shiny Uh, diamond necklace and was shocked when to her surprise all she found was this little book and it was called How to Interpret Your Dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Typical, thick-headed, slow guy. You know, slow to get a hint. Joseph's the opposite of this guy. He's not your typical guy. And the dream that he had was actually pretty straightforward. But to live into the dream require tremendous courage, courage to be obedient to God's new way forward, which would certainly be counterintuitive. In this case, the thing that was thought to be the righteous way forward changed from divorce to marriage because it was the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, that was responsible for Mary's pregnancy. The same spirit that we remember right from the very first verses of Our Bible in Genesis is now the same spirit that's birthing a new creation with Jesus. And so it's the work of the Holy Spirit, not any human initiative, that brings Jesus to birth. Mary hasn't done anything wrong. She hasn't been sleeping around on Joseph. This was God's plan all along. The birth of Jesus is the creative initiative of the Spirit of God, not some moral failure on Mary's part. Well, many people today, including some Christians, have a fairly strong reaction to the doctrine of the virgin birth. 
Modern sensibilities might have us believe that miracles are impossible, and so virgin births are somehow embarrassing to some. Although it's true that you don't actually lose too much if you let go of the idea, Jesus is still who he is, and that doesn't change. But I'm going to share a few examples, personal reasons really, why I find it to be important and why I still hold on to it. But first, some fun. A virgin birth, I can, I can believe, but finding three wise men? <laughs> that was the best. I need the, I need a symbol. For the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the best virgin birth joke I could find. I like that one. That was good. Here, here are a couple serious reasons. <laughs> That's my fun reason. Uh, First is the authority of Scripture. And this, to me, is really, really important that the Gospel writers, both Matthew and Luke, they believed that this is exactly what happened. And as a person who strongly believes that the Bible is God's inspired word, I take seriously the fact that these evangelists explain the birth of Jesus in this way. These are smart, smart evangelists. They understood the risks involved, yet they retained this anyway because they believed it to be true. And so for me, when I thought about this, I decided that I want to stand with Matthew and with Luke. I think that's important. Second is the historical, the Christian tradition throughout the centuries has held on to this as important. This is, this is amazing. Almost all Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant denominations, including all the creeds and confessions of our tradition, have all held on to this as truth because it helps us better understand who Jesus is, and it helps us understand what God was up to. Personally, I want to stand with Matthew and Luke. I also want to stand with the historical Christian tradition. To me, that's really important. The third one is just a personal or experiential reason that I, too, personally, have experienced a miraculous transformation in my own life. And so, in the tradition that we come out of here, faith is always a gift of God. A transformed life by God is nothing short of miraculous. And so I found this story of this 18th century uh, English alcoholic coal miner. And this guy was converted at one of those uh, great uh, Wesley revival meetings. And the miner started going to church. In the middle of worship one morning, his famous preacher, this Welsh preacher, his name was John Hutton, he was delivering his message, and right in the middle of the sermon, at probably the least, uh, most inopportune time, this coal miner stands up in the middle of the sermon, jumps to his feet, and starts leading the congregation and singing the doxology. Well, the sermon was shut down, the pastor was taken aback, and he decided that he needed to meet this guy who would like dare to jump up in the middle of a sermon and start leading people and singing. So he meets this guy, and he's hanging out with him, and he wants to get to know him a little bit. And uh, he asked him, he's, you know, he, he asked him, why in the world, in the middle of my message, would you stand up and lead everybody in singing? And the miner is quoted as having said the following. He said, I was in a really bad lot. I drank, I pawned all of our family's furniture, I knocked my wife about, and now life is real life and splendidly worthwhile. And then the preacher asked how this conversion of his had gone over down in the coal pit with his uh, fellow miners, and he laughed and he replied, well, today 
They asked me, you don't seriously credit that old yarn about Jesus turning water into wine, do you? To which he answered, this is incredible, this is why I use this. He answered that question with this sentence. He said, I don't know anything about water and about wine, but I do know this, that in my house, Christ has turned beer into furniture. And that is a good enough miracle for me. That's good stuff. An alcoholic who pawned all of his furniture, doesn't have any, and Jesus turns beer into furniture. That's some good stuff. A transformed life is a miraculous thing. The personal miracle of transformation in our own lives makes this historic miracle possible, or more than possible. I hold on to this doctrine of the virgin birth, not because I have to, uh, but because, like this coal miner, I too have experienced something of Jesus' transformative power in my own life. Not only do I want to stand with Matthew and Luke and the evangelists, not only do I want to stand with Christian tradition throughout the centuries, I want to stand with people like this coal miner who've experienced a regenerated life because of what God has done in sending Christ. So I hold on to it because it says that God can and in fact does come into human existence without a single shred of human initiative. And now the naming of this baby will give us even more knowledge about who he is and what he came to accomplish. And so Matthew gives the Messiah two names. Now today, in 2016, there's actually this trend. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this. Double-barrel baby names. Anyone ever heard of that? All right. Well, it's something that's like the last couple of years has started to take off. They're becoming more and more popular. Two names. Naming a baby, we know, can be agonizing for, for any couple. I don't know if it was difficult for some of you. Uh, it took us a long time to figure out what we were doing, and then we had two to figure out. That made it even more complicated. <laughs> But what do you do when you can't narrow the naming of your baby down to just one name? Well, you just go with two. And so I looked at some statistics on this because I think this stuff's fun. In England in 2014, two years ago, one in six parents were choosing what they're calling a double-barrel name for their baby girls. And the trend in the last two years has just continued to rise. So anyone care to guess what's the world's most popular paired name? Anyone want to give it a try? For a, for a girl, what's the most popular paired name, do you think? Anyone want to venture a guess? Mary, Mary Kate. Mary. Mm-hmm. Mary. Those are, those Mary are great. Mary Elizabeth. Yeah. Olivia. One name, just think one. Emma. What's the one that everyone wants to pair it with? The number one most paired name is? Sarah. Rose. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and I guess that's, those numbers, are keep, they keep going up. So either Mary and Joseph were uh, the world's most cool, the coolest people, trendsetters, way ahead of their time, or they couldn't decide between which name they wanted to give Jesus, so they give him two names. Now, anybody know the meaning of their own name? Yeah? What's yours, Eric? Brave Ooh, Brave Leader. Wow, nice. Anybody else? Yeah, one. It came from Peter Pan, and it means friend. All right, very good. Anyone else know the meaning of theirs? Yeah, shall we? My name's Hawk. All right. Yeah. Apprentice, uh, one who learns. All right, very good. That's where that comes from. I, I wouldn't so, yeah. That's awesome. I, would, I wouldn't have known. Well, I learned that mine 
Robert. I was named after my uncle. It comes from this Germanic name, which means bright fame. And I think the 10 people that listen to my podcast will prove that I have not lived into my name. <laughs> One of them's my mom, so it's like nine. <laughs> uh, my middle name is Michael. That's from my dad. Uh, and it comes from a Hebrew word, which means who is like God, right? So it's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, to be perfectly honest, you don't learn a heck of a lot about me uh, by, by knowing what my names are, but Jesus is different. Jesus' name is going to actually tell us almost everything that we need to know about him. And so Joseph is told by the angel of the Lord to no longer be afraid to take Mary as his wife because he wasn't behind this, that God was behind this all along. And so the angel gives Joseph a task. He gets the task of naming his son. And more specifically, he's going to give him two names. The names are really given to him, but he still has to uh, take the responsibility to actually follow through with what he hears. And so these are the two names given, Jesus. It comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, or Joshua, really, the way we would say it, which means God saves. And then the second name he's given is this word, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So while Jesus was a really common name in his day, like Rose, Emmanuel would have been completely unknown, impossible really for a name of a child. Think about it. God is with us. That's not something that kids were being named. So this double-barrel name is actually packed with a ton of meaning that Jesus is to be God's agent of salvation. That Matthew's cluing us in to who Jesus really is. And like all good Jews, Matthew knew that only God could save. And so we look at scriptures like Psalm 8, uh, 3, 8, which are really, really simple. This is affirmed hundreds of times over scripture that salvation is the Lord's. We've heard that, we've seen that a lot in our songs. And yet Matthew is saying that it's the baby Jesus who's going to save his people. So in some mysterious way, he's saying that Jesus really is God with us. That Jesus really is coming to save or rescue a people. And so when we look at the Gospels, we know that Jesus was always forming community around himself, starting with the call of those very first disciples. A people which now spans every tribe, every nation on earth. People who have been called into uh, the community of Jesus that we call the church. And so Emmanuel says that God has taken on humanity in Jesus. In short, that in him the, both the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity have joined together. And so Israel had found themselves in their history under all kinds of foreign rule at least three different times. Slaves in Egypt, they were exiled to Babylon, and in Jesus' day, the day of the birth of the Messiah, they found themselves under Roman occupation. And so the expectation, the thing that had been prayed for for centuries, was that the Messiah would overthrow these foreign oppressors and save them from these foreign oppressors and these for, the foreign rule. But Matthew says something completely different. He says that Jesus came for something far greater than that, that he was going to save his people, but it would be from a power that was far more mighty than the Roman Empire. Jesus, the scripture says, came to save the people from themselves, from their sins. 
And so Matthew doesn't yet say exactly how it is that Jesus was going to do this, but think about the original hearers of this birth story. They already knew the ending, like we do today. So right from the very beginning of Jesus' story, we hold on to the end in mind. The crucifixion, where Jesus' lifeblood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It was actually in the end of the hymn. The hymn went to the end, the Christmas. And so what do we do with this knowledge that we have of who God is in Jesus Christ? Well, I think we go back and we take one last look at the role model for righteousness, Joseph, Jesus' father. He doesn't say a word in the story, but he does a number of really important things. He overcomes his initial hesitation to take Mary as his wife. He also has the honor of naming this baby that would save the world. He does this and more without ever speaking. It's been said that Joseph lets his actions do the talking, that his speech is simply to do the will of God. And so he shows us what righteousness looks like. And I think the best part is that his actions show us that a really complicated word like righteousness can have a really simple meaning and application. He doesn't do anything super spectacular. He simply and quietly does everything that God asked him to do. He trusts, he believes, and he does. He trusts, he believes, and he does. He's a picture for us of what we are to do with our knowledge. The knowledge of God that doesn't find any expression in our lives would be essentially worthless knowledge. Trivia, maybe. But knowledge that drives us to obedience in living the way of Jesus, that is what real knowledge is for. And so, as Calvin said at the beginning when he started, to know God is without a doubt the most important knowledge that humanity could ever pursue. And Joseph gives us a picture, an image of exactly what we're supposed to do with that knowledge of God. Simply do the things that God asks. One of the maybe primal cries of humanity has always been, God, help me. Well, in this Advent season, the coming of Christmas in a couple days, God has sent that help. And Joseph named him Jesus. Emmanuel, God saves, and God is with us. May God grab a hold of our hearts and direct our lives. Amen. Amen. Amen.